Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. 1986's Pretty in Pink, written by John Hughes, tells a story of life, love, and social cliques among the high schoolers of 1980s Midwest. Film stars Molly Ringwald, Harry Dean Stanton, Andrew McCarthy, John Cryer, and the great James Spader, and has the bare minimum amount of skateboarding to qualify us covering it on this podcast. Nevertheless, we shall endeavor to do it. And joining us is our pal, Jen Towers. Hello, Jen. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Mike. Hello. Hello. And uh, Jen, one of the reasons I thought it might be interesting to have you on this episode is... Uh, one of the things that that you're doing is, I believe, you're researching kind of like the internet manosphere, like incels and stuff. Correct. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I spent my whole sort of career researching for the last 15 years, researching how to not to do meth. And then when I got into my PhD program about five years ago, I was so tired of meth that I, not doing meth, but you know talking to people about doing meth. And um, I decided that I wanted to move on to something a little more lighthearted and go into the manosphere and its link to mass violence, right? So so I am uh, writing a dissertation and I'm doing a sort of a content review of all of the shit that incels, MGTOWs, pickup artists, MRAs say online, the worst stuff. So not the sort of run of the mill, you know, women are sluts stuff, but the like really bad stuff, um, the like sort of mass rape, mass murder stuff. And um, so, yeah, that's what I spend my time doing right now. And then I'm, my second phase, I'm going to be interviewing some of them. Sometimes the abyss gazes back, Jen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, you know, it's like Sunday morning over coffee, deep diving into subreddits and Telegram. Pretty in Pink obviously like doesn't go as dark as the darkest levels of the manosphere. But I do think there's an element there of kind of, uh, you know, male entitlement or toxic masculinity that's sort of parallel to to what's going on in the movie and i thought i'm not sure mike and i are like the best equipped to tackle that i was like i'm i I, and i really wanted to hear like your take on on some of that well first of all can we do you guys like the movie yes i like the movie very much i thought i thought it i thought it held up really really well as opposed to as opposed to even to like 16 candles which i think 16 candles has some really cringy moments involving like I think there's like a joke about you know Anthony Michael Hall just like having his way with a woman who's passed out and like all the stuff with uh Long Duck Dong like 16 Candles has aged very very poorly I feel like Pretty in Pink there's some language that is very much of its time but overall I didn't feel that this movie what like felt particularly uh 
I, I wasn't cringing while I was watching it. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I used to like this. And I think one of the reasons people gravitated towards these, you know, I say John Hughes movies, but really I'm talking about like the ones he did with Molly Ringwald and some kind of wonderful and not kind of uh, like Home Alone or whatever, like the John Hughes teenage movies. I think the reason people gravitated towards these was he took the emotional concerns of young people seriously in the movie. So this is not a very high stakes movie, but you get that this movie is not sort of like condescending to the Molly Ringwald character at all. Right. Well, that was that was the in the on my most recent watch. That was the thing I I really responded to the most is that at no point in the movie does Molly Ringwald's character they don't there's there's no point where it's any of this is sort of somehow her problem to solve. You know, she kind of you know as as clingy and needy and and bumping right up against the the almost like the 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 incel nature of nice guys finish last kind of quality that that ducky has and the kind of the leering machismo quality that that uh that um james spader's character has not like what i like about it is that at, at no point is it her fault or her problem she just sort of moves through it and doesn't have to like, they don't make her explain herself to Ducky, even at his most sort of cloying. And I hadn't picked up on that before. My point of view in watching the movie is always from the point of view of when I was a kid. And of course I lapped right up against that, the, the, that sort of Ducky character mentality of the, oh geez, you know, the girl I like won't like me. And why won't she like me? Kind of, you know, that kind of, attitude that you have as a as an un you know like a not fully formed human being and to view it all these years later it's like oh yeah it's that's not her fucking problem at all you know how about you jen what's your history with this movie so i saw it in the movies when it came out so i would have been 14 and so it um it has been so you know i of course back then remember you kind of fall into a camp kind of like people do now with teen movies, like the vampire movies, right? You're either team Ducky or you're team Blaine. And um, I remember not being on any team except the team of the soundtrack. I love that fucking soundtrack. Like I love that soundtrack. It has been a staple in my life, my whole life. And this whole time I've just, every time I listen to that soundtrack, it brings me right back to the movie. I'd watched it again last week and because I wanted to look at it through a different lens this time, right? Like an almost like 50 year old feminist um, studying incels lens. And um, it was interesting, the stuff that I sort of picked up on, but just historically, it's been my favorite sort of eighties teen movie that and say anything are probably my two favorites. Um, I think it's one of the best Molly Ringwald movies from my perspective, um, I love all the characters. I love all the actors. Just so good. I um, had a lot less sympathy for Andrew McCarthy this time around, but I guess we'll talk about that. And then, uh, but I don't know. It's like it's got a it's got a big place in my heart, right? Like I feel like I I don't really watch movies more than once. And with Olivia Newton John dying this week, I remember I've watched seen probably seen Grease the most, and then um, probably this movie the second most. So I know it pretty well. But even this time, I probably haven't watched it in five years or six years or so. And uh, I watched it again and still found stuff. Like Mike was saying, like you see it differently as you age, I think. 
Sure. Well, I, and it's funny because I remember even as a, you know, when I was a kid, I don't remember how, I remember seeing a lot of the John Hughes movies a little too early, but I, even as a 14 year old, I remember, you know, somebody uh, bestowing the nickname Ducky on me and realizing that that was not the guy you wanted to be. Like I could certainly relate to what he was going through, but I, but I, I certainly knew that that I didn't. You don't want to be the Ducky archetype, you know. You, you maybe you don't necessarily want to be the Blade archetype anymore. But now, now I watch the movie and I'm fascinated by James Spader's character. I, I mean, know. That, I think that guy's amazing. Like he looks 35 years old. He's playing a high school senior. He's wearing <laughs> linen suits around yeah. the high school. It is an astoundingly great performance. He, he might as well have like a cigarette in a holder and a <laughs> monocle. It's like it's like. <laughs> It's so good. He's so, it's it's like, and it's funny because again, so that there's a perfect example as, as a kid, of course you hate that guy, but as an adult, you're like, man, that guy's got it all figured out, man. Right. It's fucking that guy's going places. He's playing Thurston Howell. The yes. Fourth. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Blaine. Blaine, you look like shit. Blaine, you look like he, shit. He was, he was the most entertaining person to watch on this go around. It was just, such a fun performance that had especially every every other character scene is kind of grounded in reality and it's like he's acting in a whole other movie i just loved it we're supposed to go shoot trap blade what are you buying records like <laughs> he was the most fun but i do think everyone in this movie is pretty good like harry dean stanton's great yeah uh, molly he's molly ringwald i think is fantastic in this god any pots Annie Potts was fantastic. Ducky's got his issues, but John Cryer's really good at playing that kind of character. Like, you know that person. Oh, yeah. Well, that I think that's the thing about the Ducky character is that he, at least he has his his sort of like, he has a, his character has an arc. He's not a static character. He kind of like learns you know, from his mistakes and as deplorable as behavior is, I always, this time, the scene that really struck me or actually the theme that really struck me was that, that, that insidious way in which he sort of like singles out the other people in Andy's life and the audacity of like a teenage kid having the nerve to show up at her house when her dad, when, you know, and just like sit down with her dad and be like, here's the thing about your daughter. And Harry Dean Stanton playing that so well, being like, you know, uh, that's all well and good. But if she doesn't like you, she doesn't fucking like you. And you're, you know, like that really struck me this time. The idea that then he goes to Annie Potts's character and tries to pick away at, at her and, you know, and all for the service of like, you know, getting to like feel glum and and uh, and forgotten about, and you know, sitting in his room and listening to Morrissey records, and it's like, get your shit together, man. I've I've been there, Ducky. <laughs> he he's and that's the thing. He's supposed to be a seventeen-year-old kid. That's the interesting thing about the leap from there to I think where you get to incel culture. You know, I was trying to go there in my head when I was watching it this time. Like, is Ducky incel-ish? Right? Like, I wouldn't. I don't think that his character would flash forward, you know, if he was alive today at that age, I don't, you know, if his character was, was living through 2022 at 17, would he end up on Telegram or 4chan or 8chan and, you know, um, terrorizing people or red pilling himself into some sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy? 
I don't think so because at the end of the day, I don't think Ducky hates women. I think that, I think that Ducky, like any 17 year old, um, also a 17 year old that didn't have a lot of other people in his life, right? Like he hung out with Andrew Dice Clay and, and, um, and Molly Ringwald's character, right? The Dice Man, also hey, famously not a not a person with enlightened views yeah. on women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Exact. Exactly. Well, and when Dice was doing his whole thing outside the the club, right? You could tell Ducky indulges people. He and people indulge him. So uh, it was really interesting the way that like the dad, Harry Dean Stanton, Dice. Annie Potts, his character, they indulge him because they feel bad for him, but they're also a little bit, they're amused by him, right? He's, right. he's likable. He's funny. Incels on their face are not likable and funny at all. And so not even to other incels. So they, um, like he didn't fit into a lot of character and into a lot of like spaces that, and have a lot of the characteristics that incels do. And he doesn't hate women. I think that um, he had idolized Andy for so long. It was his best friend. And, you know, he'd been friend zoned so hard that he just wasn't, you know, he was having a hard time accepting it, obviously. Um, because at that, in that scene, that was so great when he does the Otis Redding entrance. And he was like, I think earnest, where he was just like, wait, what? I'm here. Aren't we hanging out? Like we always hang out. And, um, and so I just don't think that he got it. And then when he finally got it, he was hurt and angry and lonely. And then he was accepting at the end. So yeah, he's not my top choice for incel. I think, but there was some other really interesting Manosphere stuff that showed up for me, both in the dad and in Steph, obviously uh, his characters. So, but they, and in Blaine too, actually. So a lot of other Manosphere stuff, not necessarily, not necessarily with Ducky. Touch on the dad. I'm I'm interested to. So there's this there's this um, this faction of the manosphere called MGTOW. Men going their own way. MGTOW is just a phonetic, and you know, uh, an acronym. And they are guys that have been like wronged in their mind by somebody, abandoned, wronged. Um, so they are not inherently. In the celibates they didn't always hate women but because they went through a bad divorce or their wife cheated or they got like sort of like uh knocked down in court uh going through a divorce they're disgruntled and um Harry Dean Stanton's character is so likable in so many ways but because he loved his daughter obviously um but he was so almost disenfranchised by his, his own act, like the actions of his wife or like, you know, Andy's mom. And he was bitter and he was dysfunctional and he was headed right down that MGTOW road. Like give him another couple of years where he didn't have a job and, you know, um, he was like still pining. Um, he probably would have ended up on the internet somewhere in some support group with other guys. Sure. Trying. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because I think that's, that's a huge factor for me about, about, you know, the, the, the big factor where the internet comes in is that if you, you know, there, there's that sort of theory that if you in, in, in the modern age, if you get, called out for your behavior or you get canceled, you know, whatever you want to refer to it for your behavior, 
for being misogynistic or racist or, you know, or, or whatever that if you, if you get pushed to a point where you're kind of like considered persona non grata, you're going to go to where like the phrases you're going to go to where the love is. And for a lot of those people where the love is, is you go to a white supremacist group and everybody shores you up and says, you're not wrong. You know, you are superior. Or if you're leaning towards the incel thing, you're going to go to 4chan and you're going to get a bunch of guys cheering you on and you're not going to be self-reflective. And you got, and, and so you've got to wonder, like for somebody like Ducky, would that 4chan existed at the time i you know you you'd like to think that he wouldn't sort of fall into that trap and in the movie there's evidence that he doesn't fall into that trap he figures it out and he he does have his redemption so i don't think it's any it's not a coincidence that that the amount of violence has increased right like mass murders have increased like this is all facilitated by the fact that people get both validated and wound up like it used to be right like if you were just like this neo-nazi you'd you know in the 90s or the 2000s like you'd have or the 80s you'd have to travel to like where i live like in the inland northwest to hayden idaho find your group join it right but now you can just be in your bedroom and you're you're getting all the steady stream of validation you need and there's no there's no norms or morals or um, any sort of etiquette that says, hey, that you've gone too far. There's no guardrails, right? So they can literally say whatever they want. With Ducky, I think he has empathy. And that's what, you know, he ultimately loves Andy enough to let her go, right? Like, it's just, um, and they try and wrap this up into some sort of like, classism epiphany where you know ducky's able to sort of let because he has a lot you know they all have um their sort of hang-ups about their socioeconomic status like in different ways but he's able to let that go and sort of like love her enough and have enough empathy for blaine um that he can sort of say go ahead and then he's rewarded by that at the end by the pretty blonde at the prom making eyes at him a couple things i want to say about that ending with ducky um as originally written and as originally filmed, Andy wound up with Ducky, like to the yeah. point where if you buy the tie-in novelization to the movie, it ends with her and Ducky together. And apparently that tested very, very poorly. So they reshot it kind of on the fly, which is why Andrew McCarthy's hair looks all weird because he's wearing a wig. Um, <laughs> and because they, I think they did that version and it didn't work. And I think the version they did shoot, especially in terms of Ducky's art, I think it's much more satisfying in terms of him changing as a character works really well. Um, oh yeah. Ducky cannot end up with Andy. Like I, no. it's yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is like in every interview she's given for like the past 20 years, Molly Ringwald has insisted that Ducky is based on a good friend of hers who came out as an adult um, as, as gay. And she insists that the character of Ducky is gay. Now, John Cryer says, that he didn't play it that way. And he didn't think it was written that way. And they've sort of gone back and forth a few times. And, you know, John Cryer said something like, you know, I I was, you know, I wanted to rep for, you know, the slightly effeminate doofy heterosexual guys out there who were awkward teenagers, which uh, 
Mike, I think you and I could maybe. Yeah, that is uh, that, that is a relatable piece of content right there. Yeah, definitely. But uh, like on the other hand, uh, like my friend Chris Cummins, who hosts Sci-Fi Explosion, was like, I was absolutely Ducky as a teenager and Ducky is absolutely gay. Like in a time when there was so little representation for that, I, I wouldn't want to take that away from someone either. Right. Well, I think maybe that's the, the genius in the way that John Cryer played it is that it kind of, it could be any of those scenarios. I, it, in my head, I always, it, it, it always seemed to me that Ducky was, you know, uh, kind of like when you factor in the fact that him and Andy have been friends for so long, I always got the sense that Ducky sort of presented as this sort of non-threatening sort of set, you know, like, like non, yeah, like a non-threatening sort of like friend of hers and, and kind of put himself in that position where he could hang out in her bedroom with her and be close to her and part of her life. uh, And then sort of found himself sort of trapped (laughs) by that, which is, you know, like, but yeah, but the thing is, yeah, it, it also could absolutely play that he would event, you know, three years from then he would come out of the closet and, and, you know, and that would be another totally suitable sort of arc for his character. You know, as a 14 year old watching a, even in, in a diverse city that I lived in with like family members that were gay, like that w- didn't enter into the picture for me as a possibility because I didn't. I don't think that I I was aware that any of my teenage friends may have been gay. It wasn't something at the time that people talked about much stigma, et cetera. But um, think talking about the sort of look back and the, or like maybe the critiques of John Hughes lately about how white his movies are. I was looking at the, at the movie again, going, oh, okay, there's a person of color in the background at the prom, you know what I mean? And I was trying to figure out, and I think I Googled it, and I don't think I got a satisfying answer. Where was it supposed to be set? Was it like the Midwest? I think it's supposed to be like a suburb of Chicago. Okay. Yeah, and I think uh, like the record store that uh, the Annie Potts character Iona owns is Wax Track Records kind of reskinned. Yeah. Um, So I I think it is, I think Mike's right. I think it, most of these are kind of like suburban Illinois. I always, I've always drawn to the record store because, you know, clearly it's, it had been filmed in a real record store because it, it looks so lived in and is such a perfect archetype of every punk rock record store I've ever walked into in my entire life that like, you a few years later when i found myself on fair street on that sort of open street scene it you know it it was like i was like oh this is that place in rhode island there's the there's the 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 record store and the the you know the crappy little you know the the crappy little hot dog stand and you know it's like it's like a mall but it's outdoors there's the two skater kids crossing the street (laughs) that i want to hang out with which brings us by the way to the bare minimum requirement of skateboarding in a movie for uh for for this podcast to exist where there are just the uh the only skateboarding that exists in the movie but again as a little kid any evidence of that stuff was you know was golden watching those two kids cross the street on their very 80s skateboards i i always think i always empathize with the one kid this is the the mind of the skateboarder kind of coming into the podcast 
that kid had i i assume those kids are like straight out of central casting they were probably like actual chicago like street you know skateboarder kids and he had the one chance in the shot to ollie up the curb and he doesn't make it he just kind of like flops off the curb and i i always think to myself that kid is now caught on camera for the for the rest of eternity not quite making the ollie up the curb and i'm like oh buddy they're not going to reset the camera for you, but man, you had that one shot and you blew it. <laughs> you know, it's come up on this podcast a few times, but there was a point where there was so little skateboarding media that any tiny little glimpse of that world that you got to see was really, really a treasure. Uh, I, I've, I'm sure I brought it up before, but I remember the video for Devil Inside by NXS had one lingering shot of a kid doing a trick on a skateboard and i would sit and watch mtv for hours so i could re-examine that one trick now nxs brings me to the soundtrack um which we touched on briefly but i want to dive deeper because this soundtrack is astoundingly good this is one of the great soundtracks i think like of in, in cinema history i would go so far as to say And like on a personal level, this is the soundtrack that introduced me to The Smiths, New Order, and Echo and the Bunnymen. I didn't know either of those bands until this soundtrack. And all three of those bands have become like amongst my favorites. Like they loom very large in my life. And even like uh, the stuff, the stuff that didn't make it on the soundtrack, the um, like the Otis Redding song isn't on there. And I think that was not a song that was played on oldies radio. And I think the reason people know that song is this movie and the commitments. Absolutely. I I remember being very, as much as I liked the rest of the soundtrack, that little scene where Ducky performs the Otis Redding song really stood out to me. And I remember actively seeking out, uh, you know, some, you know, soul compilation to try to find that record. And I played it over and over again because I just, of all the other stuff on the soundtrack, that song really struck me because it was like a song my dad recognized that I also recognize from like, you know, listening to, you know, I, I, I would hear sitting on the dock of the bay, but I didn't realize that Otis could bring it so heavy like that. And yeah. I, I probably listened to that song a million times. And like the title track and that song and the OMD song at the end are the ones that really get kind of like showcase moments. Right. A lot of the other songs in the soundtrack are kind of like, there's an echo in the Bunnyman song in the background playing at the record store. I was always fascinated by the bands that were playing in the club like the idea that a band like would be playing like, you know, to a seated crowd on a Tuesday night, but bring the bongo player and the saxophone player. I was like, oh, God, that's the rave up. Like, imagine the exhaustion of having to have like a fucking saxophone player in your <laughs> goddamn band. <laughs> like, oh. Who I guess are in the movie because Molly Ringwald was a big fan of the rave ups. One thing that has pissed me off about the soundtrack this whole time for 30 plus years is the fact that wouldn't it be good isn't the nick kershaw version and it's a cover um and i now i was thinking the other day do you think nick kershaw is kicking himself like maybe he didn't allow it to be on the soundtrack like didn't you know didn't give permission or if that's a thing um but i'm assuming there's some reason why nick kershaw's version wasn't in the movie and on the soundtrack um and it's got to be killing him just because the soundtrack is so iconic and sort of evergreen right it doesn't look bad at all oh, and that's a movie that, get, that gets played on got played on cable so much the residuals alone for that probably would have added up to something 
at least a nice widescreen TV. I've also I've also read a lot about the how originally the uh the the guys in the psychedelic furs were not really psyched on the use of their song because Andy's character isn't sort of the strong character that 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 sort of exists in the confines of the song. But uh I actually end up feeling I I feel really strongly, especially this time around watching it, that that Andy really is sort of a strong character. You know, it's interesting because when you you have that juxtaposition of Andy and then Iona, right? Andy Potts's character. And Iona starts off as this super hip, like super cool, like, you know, independent sort of person, woman with her own kind of look. And then she like falls in love with the yuppie and changes her look and becomes almost chameleon-esque, right? Um, And that to me was an interesting transformation because I think Andy, like juxtaposing Andy, she stayed true to herself the whole time, right? She makes her own clothes. I mean, kind of out of necessity, but, you know, drives the pink car, uh, you know, just does her own thing despite the fact that she's into blame, you know what I mean? She's not shy. The other thing I loved about her when they went to that party and he was like, pretty bad, huh? My friends are pretty bad. She's like, yeah, pretty bad. Like, get me out of here. I think about myself, you know, thinking about what I would have done. I probably just at the time would have just hung out and watched and not been so vocal. I was like, see, she is strong. Like she is kind of true to herself for sure. Well, it's it's funny in the in that first exchange when they're when they're leaving the record store, they really are. It's funny, like they almost the two of them almost blow it right out of the gate. Like they, the, the, you know, Blaine says something about like, oh, we could go hang out with your friends and crawl under a rock somewhere, and she yeah. gives it right back to him. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, oh, okay, like that. I, you know, I would like if I was on the receiving end of a comment like that at that age, I would have immediately just sort of crumbled and been like, oh. or, but I also would never have made a comment like that. And right. so the idea that, yeah, that like he's not even really ready to like meet her where she's at, like he's willing to walk into the record store and like pretend to want to buy a record because he wants to talk to her. But then when they end up on a date, yeah, it's it doesn't start out on the friendliest terms. I, I the the thing that the to me the big takeaway this time when I watched the movie, I was like, why in God's name would he take her to that party? Does he th- is he trying to like impress her? Is he trying to like kind of like run her through her her paces right out of the gate to, to to let her know what she's dealing with? Is he sort of weirdly proud of like what like what was his thinking in bringing her to that party and why like didn't he know it was going to be a disaster? You know, I think you know what I got out of it this time was that he really wanted to go like any high school person wants to go to their friends' parties when they're going to be epic in their mind and their parents are away. And then he quickly saw, you know, the sort of mistake that he made. Um, right. What I was going to, th- when you guys were talking about Bla- um, uh, James Bader's character before Steph, I was like, who told him to put on that accent too? He had that weird affect. Yeah. It's so <laughs> through the whole yeah. movie. It's so great. Whatever that character's flaws, you know. That dude throws one heck of a party. Yeah, yeah he, <laughs> as, bo- as bored as he is with his own bullshit, you know that he's like, yeah, he's uh, like, or just is that scene where he's like, I think it's like they 
Blaine stops by to visit, and he's like sitting behind the mahogany desk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? Are you are you like a like a fifty five year old, you know, like like a a, a multi millionaire already, or are you just a seventeen year old kid who like like you want to meet his dad because you're like, oh, that'll that'll fill in a lot of the blanks there. Like, is he just like his dad or nothing like his dad? What? Is, well, I will say, like the turning point, one of the turning points, I think for ducky too like blaine only kind of like gives steph a little bit of guff at the very end of the movie whereas ducky like straight up tries to beat the shit out of him oh yeah he he insults andy and and ducky comes out swinging yeah definitely and uh ducky doesn't necessarily win that fight he kind of like kind of gets broken up and he runs away he does that awesome thing where he just pulls a banner down yes in frustration um but you know, Blaine always seems sort of like a way too indulgent of Steph's bullshit. Right. Well, he doesn't take a stand or a stance on anything. You know, he asks Sandy to go to the prom and then just sort of flakes out on it. Never really apologizes for it. You know, like it's it's a. No, in fact, he turns it on her in this part. So this is the the 14 year old through 45 year old me didn't really pick up because I love that ending. I will at times just over the years, I've just Google like YouTube just that last scene because like, it just brings me so much awesome nostalgia. It gives me all like sort of like the warm and fuzzy feelings. Um, And this time I got super pissed off because um, Blaine at the end basically was like, you know, you always said um, that I didn't believe in you, but you're the one that didn't believe in me. And I'm like, what the fuck? You didn't call her. You like didn't, you know, you didn't take her to the prom, really. You like met her there. Um, And the other thing that I was, I got really pissed at that. And the other thing I was thinking of was, did they go out literally on one date or two? Like this was a one or two date relationship, like high school relationship. Um, And then it's like, I love you always. It was a little bit more melodramatic for me this time than, I wanted it to be, you know, I mean, I still love it, but I did get kind of pissed at him. Yeah. And I think you're, I, I think a lot of your problems with the ending f- fully come out of the fact that it was hastily rewritten, rewritten that to try and figure out a way to get the two of them together at the end, rather than her and Ducky. And when I had initially read about the end of with her and Ducky, I didn't necessarily think that she and Ducky got together in a romantic sense at the end, just that they were kind of like, fuck all these people, we're going to dance. Well, it's funny because that that line that Blaine says, you know, you're, to, to your point about it being hastily rewritten, that's one of those lines that like, yeah, it sounds good for like the thing to say in that moment, but the minute, the minute you think about it for a second, you're like, no, 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 no. You asked her to go to the prom and then you just never called her back and she fucking got pissed at you for it. Yeah, they didn't have the term gaslighting back then, but that's what it was. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's um Molly Ringwald to me as a as a preteen and early teen was so cool, just like in all the movies. Oh, so ridiculously cool. And to see her feel like gaslighted and and confused. I also loved kind of that she screamed at him in the hallway. But then I was also looking at this, like she was hitting him. And I'm like, you know, I'm not so cool with that now either. You know what I mean? That she was like sort of putting her hands on him out of frustration. Like that's definitely 
so, like sort of an artifact as well. I think there were there were a few in the few artifacts in the movie that I was like, mm. and I also think no one in this movie is their best self throughout no. the entire film, which right. in some ways I think is is kind of realistic. Sure, sure. They're they're teenagers being shitty teenagers. That scene when when he when he's with Annie Potts when Ducky is with uh, I gotta call them by their characters' names. I'm sorry. The the scene where Ducky is with yeah. Andy Potts's character at the club when he knows that Andy's going to show up is his behavior is just deplorable but it's also yeah he's a 17 year old kid who's got his feelings hurt and he's just being an asshole it's not out of the realm of how someone would act in that situation no. I mean which is why Steph is so weird because Steph is just comically evil from start to finish well, he does have his one that one moment when they're at the prom and he sees, you know, he sees Andy and he has his little like, oh, shucks moment. Cause at the end of the day, he really likes Andy and just doesn't know how to express it in almost in the same way. You know, he, he, he doesn't have the, the advantage of being close to her the way that Ducky is, but he digs Andy and he just decides to be a prick about it. So this is so typical. So that behavior specifically is really typical of pickup artists in the manosphere where the term negging, right? Like yeah. they're going to be like a sixth grader and throw gum in your hair and lower your confidence um, intentionally to the point where they'll just wear you down so that they can try and, you know, like take you out. And um, like, I thought Steph definitely would have been, if we had to sort of put people into boxes in the manosphere, he's definitely in the pickup artist box. Can I ask a cultural question about skateboards? So back then... 80s were skateboards expensive were they like so would ducky be able to afford a skateboard so they at that point in time in like the mid 80s there was the there was the 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 department store brand of skateboard so a lot of those skateboard companies started out very much like bmx they were like even either in the back of surf shops and they were pretty damn expensive um, but then in the mid, but there was always the toy version of it. It had less, you know, less quality parts. I got my very first skateboard uh, from like a cow door in one socket. And it was, you know, a, a much lower quality skateboard. The the boards that they're riding though. So this is an interesting uh, little, little factoid is that the weird thing about professional grade skateboards or like you know like real skate shop skateboards is that the price point of a skateboard has almost not shifted in like 35 years when i bought my first professional grade skateboard at skateaway usa in providence on fair street i remember that the price tag was an astounding 136 dollars and it was, and the reason I got away that cheap was because the the very very awesome lady who owned Skateaway kind of helped us through. Like the this is the parts you don't really need. These are the parts that are you know kind of you know you want to have good wheels and good bearings, but you don't need all the extra bits. And she brought us in a hundred under one hundred and forty dollars, which was as the highest my father was willing to go. And today. If you walked into like civil skateboards in Providence and bought a full complete, you could get away with about $150. 
So the price point has not changed almost at all, but the boards that they're riding in the movie are like professional grade skateboards and probably cost them about $135, $140. Because I was thinking to myself, I wonder why Ducky didn't ride a skateboard because he seems to sort of like that counterculture thing seems to run sort of deep with him. And then I thought, the other thing I noticed this time around watching it is how poor Ducky was like his, oh, yeah. his, the way they depicted him at home was so much more stark than Andy's home. Right. Yeah. And they were supposedly from the same sort of like socioeconomic sort of like status. But I thought, you know, I was just thinking to myself, Ducky was riding like an old bike in the movie. It was probably like, you know, from the 70s or something. It probably was like $25 or $30, like when it was brand new. Um, that seems more affordable, I guess, than a skateboard. Like, well, and it's also, there's a much there's a much better utility to a bike. A, a skateboard, as much as I love a skateboard, it is certainly not the the most preferred mode of transportation yeah and ducky was the boy about town now i will say the the bike he was riding that you know in 1986 the bmx culture was still really huge and he's riding what i would consider like a bmx bike made out of old bmx bike parts okay that you could tell that he probably you know cobbled it together from you know, you know, a, a friend has a set of handlebars, or whatever. But you also get the sense that that was like his prized possession. Yeah. He's really good. He's, you know, there's that scene where he's riding on the street doing the wheelie yeah. and spinning the handlebars. And I think to myself, like, okay, that that's like one of. A, and it's funny that you say that because even as a kid, I remember thinking it seems clear to me that Ducky would be a skater, except that as a mode of transportation and as a almost like a. a a piece of your personality. I almost think a bike works better for Ducky. Interesting. Okay. That's really because, because of just, just the idea of riding the bike by the the girl's house. Like that's definitely you ride by the house on a BMX bike and you. Okay, uh, cool. (laughs) That's good information. Yeah. Well, Jen, I think we've come to the end of our pretty in pink discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I know that you and I know each other originally through college radio. So this is like, like we're coming full circle. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Thank you for listening. Our website is gleamingthetube.net. We're on Facebook at Gleaming the Tube and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime. Skateboarding is not a crime.